Well, if you have a Bible, let's open up to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you have no idea where that is, feel free to use the table of contents. There's a pew Bible there in front of you. You'll be in the New Testament, so go to the middle and keep going to the right. You'll see Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Keep going. You'll see 1 Thessalonians, then you'll get to 2 Thessalonians. And if you're unfamiliar with how the Bible is laid out, look for the big number 2. That's going to be the chapter that we're going to be in. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 17. We're actually going to look at the entirety of chapter 2 today because it kind of hangs together as a, as a unit or as a block. And so while you're opening up to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, I don't know if you ever saw this movie. It's a little cartoon movie back in 1998, the movie Ants. And it was all about kind of the life of ants and as they're coming and going. And it was a cartoon about the life of an ant colony and their fight against grasshoppers who wanted to steal their food that they had stored up for the winter. And if you've ever seen ants work in the real world, you know that they typically do things by going in a straight line. You know, one will find, we see those here at the church. Uh, you know, we joke that this church is built upon the largest ant pile ever. And so we'll show up sometimes and the ants have found some sweet thing in the building. And they all are like in this big line as they come and go and they, they work together uh, they kind of all follow this invisible scent line and they move back and forth. If you've ever seen ants do that, it's pretty remarkable. And there's a movie, there's a scene in this movie where a line of ants is carrying food, single file like normal. And all of a sudden, some, one of the ants looks up and there is a leaf that's floating down from the tree. And the leaf actually lands right in the line of the ants and blocks their path. And the ants immediately start freaking out. And one of the ants says, We're lost. We're lost. We're all going to die here. As this leaf has just fallen right there, they're all going, we are all going to die here. And they freak out. And what? as the ants begin to freak out because they can't find the line, one of these elder ants comes running down the mountain and is saying, wait, hold up, hold up, hold up. We're going to be fine. We're going to be fine. All we need to do is just go around. That's all we've got to do is just go around the leaf. And one of the ants goes, what are you, crazy? Can we actually do that? And the, and the older ant says, this is nothing compared to the twig of 93. <laughs> and he says, and he says, look at my eyes. Come on, look at my eyes. Let's go around the leaf. We're all doing great. And what happens is the ants find their way around the leaf. And the, and the older ant says, look, there's the line again. And onward they keep going. It's a really, really funny little scene. And it's a funny scene because we've all seen ants freak out like that when, they, when we put something in their path in real life and they scurry around like they're lost until one figures, his out, figures it out and then finally kind of tells the others where to go. And it's a funny scene, but if you think about it, though, we all spiritually act like the ants in that movie in some ways. We happily move through the Christian life in kind of a normal rhythm when life is good until something comes along and disrupts us. Something comes and falls in the line and we all freak out. You know, something new like a young pastor from South Carolina with newfangled ideas you know, we can, we can think of these things. I mean, you know, joking aside, throughout the history of the church, there's been plenty of quote-unquote leaf-in-the-path moments that have jarred the church and made the ground seem shaky. You may remember a few years ago, there was this thing called the Tomb of Jesus that was found, and it caused all kind of uproar, and uh, later on it was proven to be a forgery. And more recently, when you think about these kind of leaf-in-the-path moments where it's made people freak out, more recently, it's been critical race theory, LGBTQ ideology, the seemingly endless deconversion stories of others who once embraced an orthodox understanding of the faith, 
until it interfered with how they really wanted to live their lives and or it started costing them something socially and they bailed. These things that we think about, they, they take our faith and they put it on like a shake table. I don't know if you've ever seen like earthquake researchers, they'll build scale models of houses and things and they put them on this table that will shake them and what they're trying to do is find at the micro level what the stress points are so that when they go and build it at the bigger scale, they kind of know what they're looking at already. So you may have think about a moment that you can think of maybe in your own life where it seemed to take your faith and put it on a shake table and start shaking it around, and you felt like all the, the stress cracks are starting to form. I know I've had moments like that. And in these moments when the ground seems, seems shaky, we need to hear an encouraging word that kind of cuts through the fog, it kind of cuts through the confusion, and like that older ant in the cartoon, it just reminds us just to keep going forward, just to keep pressing forward. And these moments also remind us that our faith is not just a blind, ignorant leap in the dark, that it actually has historic foundations that have been road-tested for centuries. And we all need to be reminded that because of Christ, we have received by faith a kingdom that cannot be shaken, as the writer of Hebrews tells us. As we are united to Christ, we now have an inheritance in this kingdom that cannot be shaken. It is unaffected by the shake table of life. And still, though, this side of heaven, those shake table moments do come. Those leaf in the path moments do come. And if you're anything like me, we're all quick to forget. But this is where today's passage comes in because it reminds us, number one, that we're not the only ones who have ever felt like this. We're not the only ones who have felt like the shake table has activated. And it also reminds us that there actually is a solid foundation and a content to what we believe. And so again, we remember as the scripture was written, this was written by real people in space and time to other people in real space and time who were going through very real problems and fears and anxieties and worries. And that we also remember the human heart has changed 0% since the fall. And so these words are just as applicable to us today as they ever have been. And so let's give attention to the reading of God's word. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to read the entire chapter, so I'm going to read it a good clip. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Whatever you have is fine. Just follow along. Let's give attention to the reading of God's word. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction." who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know that what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way." And when the, lawlessness, when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. 
Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through, the, through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter." Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help as we look to his text. Please pray with me. Father, we are grateful for your unshakable word. And we are grateful for it this morning. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would take these words, that you would, by your Spirit, apply them to our hearts. Help us to see more of you and uh, help us to understand ourselves better in the process and see our own need for Christ. Lord, comfort and encourage our hearts this morning. And we look to you and we ask all these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. So remember, I talked before that this book kind of breaks out nicely into a few sections. And so we looked at uh, the first section in this book two weeks ago where you have some teaching and then it's kind of followed by this little prayer at the end. This is the second section like that where there's some teaching and then you'll notice in verses 16 and 17, there's kind of like this closing benediction kind of prayer at the end of it. And so we're, that's where we're going to take this in a unit. And the, the big question that we're going to ask this morning when we're thinking about these kind of, <coughs> excuse me, shake table moments is how do we endure during shaky times? How do we endure during shaky times? That's the big question we're going to ask. And we're going to see two ways in the text. The text kind of breaks out like this. <coughs> we're gonna, these are going to be our two main points. Number one, we remember the sovereignty of God during shaky times. Number two, we remember the security of God during shaky times. So we remember the sovereignty of God. We remember the security of God as we think about how do we endure during these shaky times. Let's look at that first point. We remember the sovereignty of God during shaky times. Now last week we began, or two weeks ago, we began our study in 2 Thessalonians. And most scholars think that Paul wrote this letter to help and encourage this young church after receiving a report back from the person who'd hand-delivered that first letter uh, and, and to also comfort and encourage and kind of teach them about some confusion that existed. Apparently this report came back and this person who carried the letter, we have no idea who it was, told Paul, hey, here's the, kind of the situation. You, you might want to touch base with them on a few things. And so in verse 1 of our chapter this morning, Paul begins to address the confusion about the return of Christ and reminds them, as he did in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, that this is going to be a joyous day when Christ is going to gather his people to himself. It's a day that we look to with great rejoicing as we look to the Lord and we say, Lord, please, we can't wait for that day when you will come and gather all of your people to yourself. And in verse 2, apparently some of the Thessalonians had heard some false claim that the day of the Lord had already occurred, and they were worried that somehow they had missed it. And Paul references a few possibilities for this false claim, a, a spirit, maybe a demonic one of confusion, we have no idea, an alleged, like maybe uh, false prophetic word that had been spoken, or 
maybe this letter that had been written and it was forged claiming to be Paul. And so he, we don't really exactly know, but we can kind of pull some of that out of the text. And there, this, this church is worried that they had somehow forgotten or missed the day of the Lord. <clears throat> and in verse 3, Paul reminds them to be on guard so that they would not be deceived. And this is consistent with Paul's words to the church in Ephesus. And con- consequently, it is actually a, a warning for us today. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, four, verse 14, Paul wrote, So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. We'll see more about this in our second point. But Paul then goes on to reference something that has been a, quote, leaf in the path kind of moment for Christians for centuries. He mentions this man of lawlessness or this son of destruction, uh, the Antichrist. And the Thessalonians were freaking out because they, had, they thought that they had somehow missed it, but Paul reminded them that they could put their minds at rest. And here's what Andrew Young said in his commentary. I thought this was helpful. He said, not only could they rest assured that the end had not come and gone unnoticed, they could also tell themselves that they, unlike some, would not be caught unawares. That's a good reminder for us as well, that it is going to be so obvious that none of us can miss it. No one can miss it. And Paul reminds us that something will happen first and it will serve as like this dramatic warning bell. That this great rebellion, the Greek word there is, uh, is the word for apostasy, and the emergence of this kind of figure of towering evil. And I take the view that I think it's going to be a person. I don't know, but that's how it reads. And so you see this description that Paul builds in four layers in verses 3 through 4. He kind of builds us a composite picture of what this is going to look like. This person's going to be a man of lawlessness, and that word there is a, a man of sin. Contempt, he's going to have contempt for anything holy with zero respect for the holy law of God. And he will be a son of destruction. There's kind of an old-timey word that if you have a King James or it's the word perdition. And so this, this is not talking about what he will do. This is actually talking about where he will end up. That this person is doomed to destruction. That there may be a spectacular rise to prominence, but ultimately we, it will end in eternal ruin. That this person is going to be a son of destruction, a son of perdition. This talks about where this person is going to end up. We see that he will oppose God. That everything that belongs to God will be an object of his hate. And finally, that he will exalt himself. He'll be consumed with pride. And he will want to be the object of worship. Basically, what you're seeing here is a picture of a, a counterfeit Messiah kind of being built. Um, and, and when you hear this word, like you hear Antichrist, we, we hear the prefix anti, and we immediately think against or in opposition to. And that's true. That can mean that. When you think about, like, for example, an anti-aircraft gun, the gun is meant to shoot down opposing enemy aircraft. So it's an anti-aircraft gun. Uh, And this is true, but the Greek prefix can also imply substitution. Substitution, so substitute. So John wrote in his first epistle, 1 John, that, quote, many antichrists have come, and many have come claiming to be a false messiah. We can probably think of others who have claimed this. You think about in the Exodus account, Pharaoh, one who is claiming that I am divinity incarnate. I am a God to be worshipped. 
You think about uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, bad guy in the Old Testament, who claimed to be, I am God, I am the living one, I am fully incarnate. Think about it in more modern times, Jim Jones, you know, the guy that, uh, that claimed to be the second coming of Christ, and that's where you get the phrase, drinking the Kool-Aid from, that whole uh, scene with Jim Jones. Think about David Koresh, who claimed to be Christ come in the flesh in Waco, and the, the Branch Davidians who followed him. You know, there's a, a long line there of people who have claimed to be the second coming of Christ. I'm, I'm, I'm he. And there's actually a story of this Syrian king, Antiochus IV, back in Daniel's time, around 169 B.C., that did absolutely everything mentioned in Paul's description. Absolutely everything. Went into the temple, set up a throne for himself, actually sacrificed animals there in the temple. Did absolutely everything mentioned here, but as we can tell, the end has yet to come. We're still around. And so... You think about all these people, and you know, who could it be, who could it be, who could it be, who could it be? And in verse 9, we're told that this coming evil one will be in league with Satan, who's been using lies and deceit from the very beginning to, sh- to scare and intimidate God's people. And in many ways, we should, we should expect more of this in the days to come. Lawlessness and rebellion against God are hallmarks of a fallen, sinful world. And indeed, we even see those hallmarks in our own hearts rebellion against the Lord and, and fighting back against Him. We see it even in our own hearts. And, but the troubling piece about this uh, passage, when we look at what John and Paul are talking about here, John wrote that they, quote, went, they went out from us, implying that this person may ultimately come from inside the ranks of the visible church. But even that is nothing new. Even that's nothing new. You think about we can see this in the life of Judas Iscariot. We see this in the lives of, we read stories of these wicked popes that just wreaked havoc upon the church. We think about guys currently, like guys like Bart Ehrman, who came and grew up in an orthodox tradition and are now writing books and hate conservative Christianity, hate conservative Christians, actively talk about them. You know, guys like the Kenneth Copelands of the world who are preaching a false gospel, and you should flee from guys like him that are, that are lining his own pockets with money stolen from people, teaching this false doctrine. Wolves among the sheep. They've been around since the very beginning. And so honestly, we always look and we take, is what this person's saying, even the words that I am saying, are, do they fit with Scripture? Are they in line with Scripture? And the, the, you get this in verse 5 that Paul implies that he's already told them about all of this. Did you catch that? He said, didn't I teach you about all this the last time I was with you? Wouldn't you like to have those early lecture notes from Paul? I would love to see them. I was like, I wish I had his lecture notes from the first time he was with the Thessalonians and he laid all of this out. Those would be amazing notes to have. But we don't have them. And I wish we did, but we don't. And so I get asked all the time in this, in this area, Dave, do you, think the, do you think we're in the end times? And my answer is yes. Yes, I do. Because we've been in the end times since Christ walked out of the tomb and promised to return. He said, I'm coming back. And so every day that we have the Jesus walking out of the tomb and him promising to return, every day we're closer to that end day. So do I believe that we're in the end times? Yes. Now where we fit on the timeline, I have no clue. But the end of days is talking about a quality of day, not a quantity of day. A quality of day. Okay, and that's important to keep in your mind. 
And so Paul said that the final day will come like a thief in the night. You remember when we looked at that not too long ago? This day will come like a thief in the night, so there's no point in trying to pinpoint it on a chart. It's not going to work. Every day that passes is one day closer to the end of days, and it's easy to read things like this and lose sight of the big picture, like the leaf falling in the line of the ants, and we all go, (gasps) what's going to happen? And this is where Paul is like that elder ant running down the hill, telling us to calm down and to refocus. And this is where your doctrine of a sovereign God helps bolster you when when you feel shaky. Look at verses 6 and 7. Paul assures his readers that this evil one is already being restrained somehow and will continue to be until, quote, until he is out of the way. Think about this evil one is already being restrained. He's like a dog on a leash. He can only go so far. And you have a doctrine of a sovereign God who knows that he's there and is restraining him. You see in verse 8 that somehow this big reveal is finally going to happen. But what happens right after the big reveal comes? We are told that Jesus is going to wipe this person out quickly. And the true Messiah will triumph decisively in the end and God alone will receive all the glory. But not just this one. It says that the Lord is going to cut him down with the word of his mouth. It's going to be this kind of public defeat. But not just that. Look in verses 10 through 12. All those who are in league with Satan will also be crushed underfoot. What you have is the rise of a false Messiah saying, Worship me, worship me. And what you have is the true Messiah coming and crushing this person and all who follow him underfoot. This is your doctrine of a sovereign God. None of this is going to catch the Lord Almighty off guard. Not a bit of it. And we trust him. So who is this evil one? That's the question we're all asking, right? Who's this evil one? I have no idea. And neither do you. And that's okay. I don't know. You don't. You can spend the rest of your life trying to dig around. You don't know. I don't know either. And that's okay. The important thing is that God knows who it is and that his defeat will be ultimate, and that is enough. So we calm down, and we trust a sovereign God. God is sovereign, his throne is secure, and he will destroy Satan and all those who have sworn allegiance to him in a very public defeat. That's what Revelation 19 is all about. In the end, every knee will bow before the true king and the true Messiah one day. One day, someday, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. It will be just this unbelievable day. I have no idea how to even describe it. But if you're here today and you do not trust the Lord, if you do not know Jesus as your Savior, that's scary news. You will not be able to stand up to a holy God on your own and your own merit. You need a mediator. You need one to stand between you and that holy God on that day of judgment. It is fixed. It is coming. And Paul says that it will come like a thief in the night. So you can't do your kind of life planning around the return of Jesus Christ. And you say, well, I'll just live kind of however I want until I get my, you know, my assets in a row and I do all the stuff that I want to do. Paul said it'll come like a thief in the night. And so I, as a minister, have to be faithful to the text and say, are you ready for that day? I don't know when it's going to be, but it will come like a thief in the night. And we're all called to... Uh, to stare our lives in the face and to where do we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ? Where do we stand? Are you ready? If you're not, please flee to Christ. Repent of your sin and your self-salvation project 
and flee to Christ. He's the only, only, only advocate, the only one who's atoned. It's Christ and Christ alone. It's not Christ plus your plus your 401k. It's not Christ plus your family name. It's not Christ plus anything else. It's Christ, Christ alone. Christ alone, by faith alone. Is that where your hope is grounded? Are you a, an inheritor of the only kingdom that cannot, that cannot be shaken? Because it is uniquely tied to King Jesus. Do you know the Lord? See, the thing that's hopeful about all this is we get so freaked out about the man of lawlessness talk and we miss the good news in the midst of this. This is what is hopeful. That every single one of Christ's blood-bought elect will be gathered up with him and not a single one will be lost except for the son of perdition. Every one of them. Every single one of them. Jesus says, I know my sheep. I know every one of them by name. And no one will be able to snatch them out of my hand. No one. Isn't that amazing news? Isn't that good news? I hope it is for you. Here's the thing. The great commandment or the great commission is not go worry about who the Antichrist is. Okay, the great commandment and the great commission is go make disciples. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And what are we commissioned to do? Go make disciples and to share the hope that's within us to a fallen world. The call is not sit around and spend the rest of your life trying to figure out who the Antichrist is. You have no idea who it's going to be. I don't either. And instead of spending your days trying to figure out what is unknown to you and can't be known... Go live a faithful life and tell others about what is known to you. And here is what is known to you, I hope. That there is one name by which men can be saved. His name is Jesus Christ. That he died an atoning death on the cross so that salvation could be accomplished and applied to a bunch of undeserving sinners. And that his kingdom will last forever, unlike any fake Messiah you can point to. That's what we do know. So we're called to go and to take what we do know and to go share it with a fallen world that is in open rebellion and hostility against a holy God. And leave the rest of the stuff, the day of the Lord and all that, leave that with the Lord. He's got it under control. That's our doctrine of a sovereign God. I know this view doesn't sell many end time books. I know that. It would be a very short book. It'd probably be one page. I know this view doesn't sell many end time books, but I believe it's the biblical approach which is calm down, trust Christ, go be faithful, love God and your neighbor, rinse and repeat. Go live a faithful life. Live a faithful life for the glory of God alone. I know that doesn't sell many end times books. I can't sell you a PDF of a chart of where I think we are. But I think it's the biblical approach. Be faithful. Trust Christ. Rest in the sovereignty of our Lord. And leave the, leave the stuff that we can't know to Him. This is where our doctrine of the sovereignty of God comes rushing in to bolster us in these moments. When we read things like this and go, what in the world do we do now? We're all going to, we all freak out and we're all going to die. And Paul says, no, calm down. Trust Christ. That's it. Okay? But you're all asking, so what do we do in the meantime when life still feels shaky this side of heaven? Okay, that's our second point. We remember the sovereignty of God during shaky times. Now we remember the security of God during shaky times. So God's sovereign. He's got this under control. But how does that hit in my own backyard? 
That's the second point. We remember the security of God during shaky times. Look at verse 13. Paul reminds this shaken church of the Father's sovereign election of them. The Greek literally reads, God has chosen, and it's in the aorist tense, which is a completed action in the past with ongoing consequences. That's what the aorist is. So God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. That's how the Greek literally reads in that verse. And the hallmark of this sovereign grace will be a life marked by sanctification. And that is a term that is talking about us being conformed more and more to the image of Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit, even through the hard stuff, even through the shake table stuff. All of it is for our glory, is for His glory and for our good, excuse me. And so it's this work of the Holy Spirit and this growing belief and faith and trust in the truth of God's Word and His promises. Look at verse 14. To this, which he's referring to salvation, to this, salvation or justification, he, the Spirit, called you through the gospel, through the sovereign work of effectual calling, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, which we're talking about theologically there, glorification. So notice, did you notice that all three members of the Trinity are present there? To save, secure, and sanctify God's people and to keep them safe into eternity. Look at, um, notice what Paul gives them in these moments to bolster their faith in shaky times. What does he do when they're freaking out? We've, have we missed, somehow missed something and we're all worried, Paul, like what's going on? What does Paul give them in that moment to help bolster them? You know what he gives them? Sound biblical doctrine. That's what he gives them. He gives them doctrine. And I'm continually amazed at the response I see when I use the word doctrine. And I've heard things that people say like doctrine divides. Okay, that's foolish because it assumes that all doctrine is bad. We all make doctrinal claims, which in and of itself, when you say doctrine divides, that in and of itself is a doctrinal claim. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, is a wonderful promise, is it not? It's also a doctrinal statement. It's a very simple doctrinal statement, but it is a doctrinal statement. And ladies and gentlemen, we all function with some operating doctrine. Neutrality is a myth. There is not a single one of us who is neutral and unaffected. We all have some sort of operating doctrine that we work out of. So the real question is, what grounds informs your doctrine? What grounds informs it? What, what is it operating out of? Is it your own private interpretation that changes from week to week or month to month and year to year? Is it your feelings? Is your doctrine based on how you feel about it? Those change with the wind, as you know. Is it culture? I hope not. What is your doctrine based in? So many people have been and continue to be dashed against the rocks and led out to sea spiritually because they cling to an anti-intellectualism that refuses to grow, refuses to change, refuses to be challenged. Paul is warning us all, you need to hear this, Paul is warning us all that deception is all around us and we need to be on guard. We need to be on guard so that we're not led astray. There is safety in, commun in the communion of the saints throughout the centuries, and these centuries-old creeds and confessions that many have fought and died to preserve. That's why we love creeds and confessions. That's why we love to read the old dead guys in our Reformed kind of world. This doctrine matters. 
These things that have been road-tested for centuries that people have gone to the stake to defend. And I still am amazed that people have no trouble researching and learning long medical terms to help them understand and explain their physical ailments to others, but then bristle when challenged to learn shorter theological words that will help them better understand and explain the state of their eternal souls long after that physical body is in the grave. It honestly baffles me. So I'll hear, oh, I can't learn that, and I can't understand that, but if something hurts in your body, you'll go on WebMD and learn a word that's this, this, this long. It just baffles me, especially when your soul is at stake in eternity, and you don't want to take a few seconds and kind of dig into this doctrine and understand it better. It, it honestly baffles me. And so instead of rolling your eyes when doctrine is taught from the pulpit, maybe give the preacher the benefit of the doubt that he actually loves you and he's trying to build into you a biblical framework that will be able to withstand the shake table of a culture that hates Christians more and more every day. I don't want, to, I don't want you to be tossed around. I want you to be anchored in what is true and unchanging. I want you to be anchored to sound doctrine that points to the rock of Christ. Because the wind is picking up, and I want you to be anchored. Sermonettes make Christianettes. And man-centered self-help preaching may make you feel good and comfortable in the short run, but you will fold like a cheap tent when the winds of culture pick up. And I do not want that. I want you to stand firm. If that's all you have in your toolbox, you're going to fold like a cheap tent. You're going to be shaken apart. And what we're doing is we want to learn and know what we believe. Now's the time to learn it and to wrestle with it. My time on the college campus and living in several large progressive cities showed me the leading edge of the larger cultural battle. And I've seen many people pulled out to sea into apostasy by the cultural rip currents. And you are crazy if you don't think that rip current isn't already impacting this small town. Just open your eyes and look around. You think, oh, Fort Payne will never get there. It's already here, ladies and gentlemen. Open your eyes and look around. The rip currents of culture, the undertow of culture, is trying to rip you from the sand and pull you out to sea. It's happening right now. And so what do we do in those moments? What's keeping your spiritual foundations from being shaken? Is it, again, is it your feelings? They rise and fall like the tides. Is it your own private interpretation? That's going to buckle under pressure. Paul told them and us today, did you see it? To stand firm and to hold fast to the traditions that you have been taught. He says, stand firm, hold fast to what you've been taught. Here's some verses, Jeremiah 6, 16. I'm almost done. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. Jude 3, we're told to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. 2 Timothy 1, 13 and 14, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Paul warns us that many will be led astray in the last days by false teaching because it tickles the ears and it makes people feel good about themselves. But here's the thing. Truth is truth because it's true. And it doesn't care how you feel about it. Truth is truth because it's true. And it doesn't care how you feel about it. That's hard for us all to hear. It's hard for me to hear. I read things in the scripture, I'm like, I don't like that. 
You do too. I don't like that. doesn't matter. It's true. And so we submit our lives to it. And we say, thank you, Lord, for helping us understand how life works best. Because if given any moment of full independence, I would throw myself off a bridge. Thank you, Lord, for the restraining work of the Holy Spirit, keeping me from myself, because I don't trust myself. And thank you that you've actually told me how life works best. And who wins in the end? Aren't you glad to know? Aren't you glad that you have a completed Bible in your hand? These Thessalonians did not have everything else. They didn't have revelation. They were wondering, Lord, have we missed anything? We have the blessing of a full completed scripture in our hands that we ground ourselves in and we know who has the ultimate end, do we not? And it's, it's comforting to know that. I hope it is for you. It is for me. And so what do we do? Let's open our Bibles. Let's get around people that encourage you to trust the Lord, to be on guard because Satan prowls around you and this church like a hungry lion. Let's learn the big words. Let's lean into our faith. Let's strain to know Christ in a deeper way. Remember, as Paul has said, encourage each other with these words. Remind each other of what is true and right and what points us to Christ. We need to be reminded of the gospel. We forget it. But don't do this without hope in a sovereign God who loves you and has secured you through the blood of Christ and who will hold you fast until the very end. Look at verse 14. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the end goal. To the glory of Jesus. This he called you through the gospel. And the gospel is you can't save yourself. You need a savior. And the only name by which men can be saved is the Lord Jesus Christ. His grace to a bunch of broken, messed up people. To this end, through that gospel message, he has called you out and has now kept you safe and secure until the very end and given you a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's truth. That's hold on to truth when life gets scary. This is our hope in life and in death and shaky times and joyous times. It's the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. That's our hope. What's our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone, Christ alone. It's Christ. And look at how Paul ends here in verses 16 and 17 as we finish up. I know we covered a lot of ground. Look how Paul ends up. In light of all this truth that we've just heard, in light of all the things that Paul just talks about, how, how does he end up? He, he ends like this. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. So what do we do when the wind picks up and it feels like life gets shaky? What do we do? Look to Christ. Trust in Christ. Rest in Christ. Rest in a sovereign God. Rest in the security that God has you, that he knows you, and that he will keep you safe until the very end. And then just go live a faithful life. That's it. Rinse and repeat. Remarkably easy. Live, leave the big stuff to the Lord. Go be faithful and love your neighbor. Amen? Amen? All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your mercy and your kindness. Thank you that your words are, you are the great unshakable one. So we've already sang that, you never shake and you never will. And Lord, in those moments where we feel like our faith is shaky, in those moments where we kind of don't know what's coming around the corner, help us to remember and trust that you are sovereign, that you know all that has come to pass and all that will come to pass. And Lord, help us to trust you all the more. Help us to rest in our union with Christ. 
that we are so united to him that when you, the Father, look upon us, you see your Son, and that you have promised that you know every one of your sheep and that you will keep them and secure them until the very end and on into eternity, not because they're awesome, not because they're good, but because you love them. And so, Lord, we're thankful for that. We're thankful for the simple gospel message of grace. We're thankful for this work of the sanctification in our hearts, conforming us more and more to the image of Christ. We are thankful for the hope of glory, that one day you will take this busted up, broken creation that we're surrounded by, and there will be a time when there will be no more death and no more tears and no more crying and no more scary stuff, and there will only be you. And so, Lord, until that day comes, help us to be faithful but help us to lean into the promise of that great day, trusting you for all things. We humbly pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.